da 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 okay Welcome to Antique Tea, the podcast where historical gossip is raised from the dead. I'm Erica Mighty, voice actor, lapsed history major, and as a new Floridian, an avid knitter and crocheter of ineffective sweaters. (laughs) My name is Jason Hayes, and I am a dad and an improviser, and I am ready for my second dose of Moderna. Yes, (laughs) I just got mine. I was mm. very smiley, which in retrospect, I don't think the guy giving the shot could tell. Well, you're marrying a mask, yeah. But uh, seriously, like a holiday. <laughs> and it, it kind of like actually was like a holiday because I got a Moderna hangover. So it was like I drank too much nice. and then had a hangover, but it was just from the shot. Or M- Moderna Gras. This is the first episode we've recorded since we've released any episodes. So Indeed. I want to thank everybody who's listened and shared. We had a really great launch and the podcast is continuing to get bigger. I want to give a special hello to our friends from Sao Paulo. It's super exciting to both of us yeah. to be able to like connect with people. I think you're on Twitter more and I'm on Instagram. Yeah, and I have no life, so connect, you know. Like, bring it on. <laughs> I'll take I'll take human interaction even if it's digital. The big excitement right now, though, is that we're done talking about the romantics. Oh, bish. I know. But we're starting a new series. Yes. It is going to be a little shorter, due in large part to the fact that I don't speak Korean no matter how much I wish I did. It's really hard language to learn. I lived there for a year. It is fucking hard to learn. How would you rate your fluency? After a year. Point zero zero four. It was also like, it was also, <laughs> you know, I lived there 15 years ago. So oh, any sure. kind of phrases and things that I use day to day are gone from my memory. Let me give you a teaser on this Ooh. one, though. Let me wet your whistle. Ew, I hate prime that. Your pump. I hate that. Ew, what? Gross. You're putting all the weird phrases. Wet your whistle. Fluff your tuft. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So wet your whistle. I've always hated that one. That's about drinking, right? I guess. I don't know. Anyway, give us a teaser. Okay. So our new series is called The Rice Chest, and it's a real-life fractured fairy tale. Ooh. It's the story of a mad prince, his stern father, his devoted wife, and a hot summer day in 1762 when, according to his wife's memoir, heaven and earth clashed and the sun and moon turned black. So it's either a dark and stormy night or a hot summer day with you. Is that going to be like a theme on all of our stories? Yes. There's going to be a major weather. Perfect. Call back for every single. It was a humid afternoon. (laughs) That'll be our next uh, next series. (laughs) The events leading up to this day were so dark that the prince in question's name was posthumously changed to Sado by his father which means thinking of with great sorrow, to the extent that even mentioning him was forbidden in the court. And his own son's genealogy was rewritten so that he wouldn't be seen as the biological son of the damned prince. Oh, my God. This one's going to get dark. Jesus. Okay. We got to start every series with some notes on our sources and some caveats. Yes. 
The biggest caveat here is that I am not Korean. I'm not Korean-American. I have never been to Korea. So there's a lot that I looked up and a lot that I've done my best to understand. There's a lot I'm going to get wrong because I am not an 18th century Korean or a modern Korean. I I actually am an 18th century Korean, so that works out. That works out. I'll I'll fill in the gaps for you. Yeah. I'll rely on you for context. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's a huge gap in our knowledge and our history. And I mean, for most of these, most of these stories, but um, for something where we don't speak the language, I mean, that's a huge gap. Well, and the gap gets even bigger, given that we don't speak the language, because this is a story that, as I understand it, every school kid knows in Korea. It's a really well-known story, but there's like no sources in English. There's so few. I could find next to nothing to purchase, let alone in the library. And that makes looking for like contextual information more difficult, too. Because if I Google part of a wedding ceremony, I'm getting two responses. Whereas if I Google, you know, what color was Lord Byron's bathtub, I've got 87 Google responses, you know, Google pages. I hope you go into Korean weddings. Are you going to go into Korean weddings? Oh, oh yes. my God. They're amazing. We're going to go into they're amazing. Korean, Korean weddings. weddings are amazing. What makes this even more frustrating is that there is so much information available in Korean. Basically, Confucian societies like Korea at this time created massive texts called annals, which are extremely detailed histories of the day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year goings-on of the kingdom. They cover politics, society, culture, religion, weather, daily life, just everything. Like, this is a UNESCO heritage document because it's so big. They're a historian's dream. Immense care was taken by the authors to be nonpartisan and completely neutral. So... You can go back and see what the weather was like on this day and, like, what color the prince's poop was. I mean, not, uh, you know, but you get the idea. (laughs) That was a huge (laughs) jump from what the weather was like. Yeah. Yeah, What are you going to do? You can tell what I think about (laughs) I mean, they tried so hard to keep this thing neutral that not even the king was allowed to read the record just in case he tries to use the data for political purposes. Right. There would be writers of these annals hiding behind bamboo screens, eavesdropping on conversations to put the information in these documents. Like legally eavesdropping? Like that's what yeah. people like society wanted this to happen. Yeah. Wow. Legal literary paparazzi. I don't know how yes. to phrase it. Yes. Legal literary paparazzi now known as LLP. Yes. Wait, isn't that a business? Limited Liability Corporation. Oh, no, it's LLC. <laughs> <laughs> uh. To give you a sense of the size of these annals, they cover 1,893 volumes. Oh. And that's just for Joseon, Korea. Just for the 500 years of that kingdom. Damn. But they've all been digitized. They're on a website. You can search through them. They've been translated from classical Chinese to modern Korean. So if you're a Korean speaker in Korea, you have access to all of this information. This is where the the plots for K-dramas come from. Writers will just take real historical information from these annals and, and make it. But the annals are not available in English. Why? Because it took 26 years and hundreds of translators to put the thing in Korean in the first place. Wow. You know, I'm actually surprised because Koreans are very English driven. They, 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 Mm -hmm. it's absolutely essential that you speak good English. So I'm surprised actually that they haven't done more translating of that. Well, they're working on Mm -hmm. it. 
It'll be done in 2033. <laughs> Sweet. We'll have a follow-up. We'll have a follow-up in 2033. episode where we uh, retract everything you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably. And if you are an expert in this story and we get stuff wrong, uh, please oh email us at antiqueteapodcast at gmail.com. I try really hard when I'm doing this research to get it as close to right as I yes. can. So, you know, send us mistakes and we'll we'll correct ourselves. The other problem, so I thought, okay, I can't get into the annals, but surely there have been people who've written, you know, histories of Korea. Yeah. Or this is such a famous story, there's going to be a nonfiction book about the history of the king at the time or about the prince. When you search for books on Amazon on Korean history, either broadly or specifically in the time period, the vast majority are either $60 textbooks or like weird Kindle cash grabs that were probably written by a bot. And there's very little in between. Wait, there are books on Amazon written by bots? Oh, yeah. What? Yeah, like if you Google, if you want something really specific, like I want to know all the winning racehorses from 1900 to 1910. Somebody has, like, built a bot to write that book. I had no idea. That's so yeah. weird. As a voice actor, I have narrated some very strange self-published Kindle books <laughs> that may have fallen into that category. And uh, also books that were clearly Google translated yeah. from other languages into English, which are a trip to narrate because they have to pay me more if they want me to fix it and put it in proper yeah. English. And if they're not doing that... Then I will read that bad grammar very confidently. <laughs> That's fantastic. <sighs> anyway, I found a couple of books, specifically two books, and they're by the same author, Jahyun Kim Habush. She was a professor of Korean studies at Columbia and was like one of the foremost Korean scholars in the U.S. One of them, unfortunately, the one that is just like a straight up nonfiction book mm -hmm. about the era we're talking about is now print-on-demand only from Columbia University Press and costs $840. $840? No, no, $100. Oh, I was like, Jesus, Louisa. Still, $150, bucks, yeah. That was too much, and it would have taken like a month, and we would have had to take a break on the book. Right. Well, when was it written? Is this woman still alive? No, she passed in, I think, 2011. Oh. It was written in 1988. Oh, okay. So there are used books, like used copies available, yeah. but they're like 115. Yeah, so rare. Yeah. But the other book that she worked on is the one we're using as our primary source. And it is a primary source. It's actually a great source. And it's more than enough to tell a good story, even if it means that story is going to be shorter than our romantic epic. The book that we're going to be basing this on is called The Memoirs of Lady Haigung, oh. which Habush translated. And this tells the first person story of the life of the wife of the prince. It's one of the more shocking, tragic, and frankly, gossip-worthy stories of royalty gone wrong that I'm aware of in any culture. Royalty gone wrong. I love that phrase. Yeah. Yes. A couple of other quick source notes just so that I can make sure I have sourced this properly and don't miss anybody. Normally, I try not to use Wikipedia too much, but I had to in this one. I mean, I don't know why not. I mean, I think that's what my son uses, what my ninth grader uses for most of his homework. I grew up in an era where you weren't allowed to use Internet sources that anyone can edit. I grew up in a period where there was only books. <laughs> <laughs> well, still, let me be snobby about it. <laughs> Uh, I did crack into JSTOR a little bit. There's a journal article called Confucian Rhetoric and Ritual as Techniques of Political Dominance 
Yongjo's use of the royal lecture from the Journal of Korean Studies, Volume 5, published 1984. That just rolls off the tongue. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I bet that jumps out at you on the bookshelf. (laughs) I know. I also got a really dumb-dumb book on Kindle that I do not recommend called Joseon's Royal Heritage, 5,000 Years of Splendor by Robert Kohler. Yes, I am calling you out. This is a tourist guidebook, not a book book. But I got one or two things from it, so whatever. So let's set the stage. What do you know, Jason Hayes, about Korea in the mid-1700s? It was a dynasty, um, right? Yeah. Monarchy, monarchy, yeah. monarchy. What's the difference between a dynasty and a monarchy? Do you know? A dynasty is within a monarchy. Like monarchy just means that oh. there's an absolute ruler, a single absolute ruler. And a dynasty is like dynasty the family. Is the chain of those rulers. Like the family. Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. And I mean, that was all Korean history, I guess, was monarchies. So there's two different periods in Korea, and it's been so long since I've lived there. Two different periods that they considered Korea. There was pre-Japanese um, mm-hmm. rule, and then there was post-Japanese rule. And that's sort of the two Koreas. Sure. And you're talking about the one that ended in 1945? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I would argue that there are three. Okay, bring it on. The first one starts with a G, and I did not look up how to pronounce it, but it was Buddhist Korea. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. Where... It was actually really egalitarian. Like women could inherit property and awesome. had a bunch of rights. The little feminist that I am, that's about all I can tell you about it. Uh, Isn't that wild, <laughs> though? I mean, I've, I read little tidbits of things where ancient, ancient history, there was all these feminist societies. And then it, I mean, not everywhere, obviously, but there were these pockets of them throughout ancient history. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, men were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and yeah. took back over. That's wild. It sucks. No, anyway. anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then you've got Joseon, Korea, which is a huge chunk of history. Yeah. I mean, it's not because history is like millions sure. of years, right? So it's a tiny chunk, but it's a big chunk in terms of whatever. Or of modern, of modern day written Yeah, yeah. of memorable history, let's say. Right. So it lasted about 500 years, ending when the Japanese invaded. Yeah. It was marked by a huge ideological change from Buddhism to Confucianism. This is the zenith of what's now thought of as classical Korean culture. Mm -hmm. So when you have that, if you watch like a K-drama or you have that picture of, you know, women in hanbok and those hats that make people look like pilgrims kind of, but not... Like, that's all Joseon Korea. In the middle of the Joseon period, there were a series of invasions, first by the Japanese and later by Manchu China, that led Korea to slam its doors shut to the extent that Korea was referred to in the 1700s as a hermit kingdom, just like North Korea is referred to today. And you know what? Maybe them closing the doors was a good call because that is where classical Korea, as we know it, comes from. This 200-year period of peace and prosperity where they just kind of kept to themselves. Yeah. If anything, Korea is full of war. I mean, there, yeah. there, there is in Seoul, there, which I've been to, there is a history, like a, a history of Korean war. And it's that's all the museum is about is about mm-hmm. all of the war that's gone on and it's huge that's gone on yeah. throughout korea so that's it's been a tumultuous history for that country god i believe it you know you've got the mongols if you go far enough mm-hmm. back china japan has been expansionists in yeah. periods of its history yeah. right 
Japanese piracy was a big issue, what? which is something I would like to look into more because that is something I'm very it curious about. It is a peninsula. About. Peninsula or peninsula? Peninsula. It's peninsula? Peninsula. Uh, have we talked about this before? No, I, but we should I feel like I was having it. this conversation recently where I say peninsula. Yeah, I'd, I've never heard it pronounced that <laughs> way. I could be wrong. I mean, I also say kinder, kindergarten, or I used to say kindergarten. Kinder, kinder okay. Kinder, kindergarten? Anyway. Um, kindergarten. You I can cut know. all that out. Yes. <laughs> Japanese pirates? That's amazing. Yeah. It was a huge problem. I, anyway, I, I want to start by giving some context to what life would have been like in this time period. And I know everyone wants to jump into the story itself, but trust me, I did that. And without context, you're going to want to look up a bunch of context. And so that's where we're going to So we're starting kind of where they closed off their borders and became insulated? In that period, Okay. Yeah. And how long, just to give me context, like future context, how long after that sort of closing of borders does this story take place? Like a couple hundred years or? I want to say like 75 years. Okay. Okay. So it's like a, fair, a generation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. But I, I could be wrong about that. In terms of what society looked like at that time, we have to understand the government a little bit. The primary philosophy driving kings and ministers in this area was called shila or practical learning. So this is not a warrior elite nobility like you see in Europe a lot. Okay. It was more of a scholar elite nobility. Your rank was determined largely by the exams you could pass oh. and how well you could argue them. And instead of worrying quite so much about who are we going to invade, who's pissed us off, who's demeaned us most recently, the ministers and the king were very interested in things like how they could reform agriculture, reform the civil service, make taxation work better. Interesting. A lot of this comes down to Confucian philosophy. You know, unlike the West, where we care a lot about individuality and individual glory, the Joseon kings were more focused on the collective. How can we build a better bureaucracy? That is still very apparent today. There is a collective mindset in Korean culture, even today. I very much got that vibe when mm -hmm. I visited China, too. Mm -hmm. Wow. And that bureaucracy is intense. Cool. It is like cool. a super bureaucracy. There's a directorate or a committee for everything. Anything and everything that happens is recorded for those annals that I mentioned. Every royal event is documented uh. in quadruplicate in a booklet showing seating arrangements, procession details, how things are decorated, what the performers wore, exactly who was there, what was said, oh down to like God. the jewelry that gets worn. Oh, my God. I wish that you could get that information. Oh, my God. That is some gossip-worthy shit. That's like uh, who wore it best kind of stuff. We could do some of that e-network shit. <laughs> yes. Oh, that would be fun. 2033, Jason. 2033. <laughs> because of this bureaucracy, it's also a period of really rigid hierarchy. There's essentially a caste system in Korea, ranging from slaves up to nobles, with social mobility being possible but limited. Right. Within the government alone, officials could carry any one of 18 different ranks. One became a noble not through a great military victory or through personal glory, like you might see in Europe, but through passing either a literary, military, or miscellaneous guajeo, which is like a civil service exam, with literary being held in the highest regard. Huh. So if you knew the Confucian classics the best, you could pass an exam, become a noble, and that was hereditary. So your family would keep being in this noble caste unless 
after three generations, if someone fails the civil service exam, then you get bumped back down to commoner. Weird. That's so crazy. So if like my dad was mm-hmm. super smart and like ace the civil servant exam, um, mm-hmm. and then I went in one generation later and was like, I don't know nothing. I would still be have still have the rank. It would take my son to then fail. I Three generations, so. either your son or your son's right, son. Yeah. Right, right. Mm, let's coast in on my dad's, <laughs> on my dad's <laughs> intelligence suite. Yeah, right. So let's go into the people themselves. What was life like for actual day to day people in the second half of Josie and Korea? Starting with life expectancy, mm. correcting sort of a misapprehension that people have. Life expectancy and height as well have a lot more to do with the ability to get good nutrition and to be lucky in terms of getting sick than some sort of generational thing. So you'd have kings like Henry VIII was over six feet. Yeah. People would live till their 80s. All of that is possible. It's it's all these other environmental factors. Yeah. I mean, you think about people's lives. If you think about like uh, even our founding fathers, like a lot Mm -hmm. of them lived to be 90 at least. Yeah. Yeah, And you think about that's 17, you know, early 1800s when they, I guess, died. Mm -hmm. You always think about like, well, everybody died when they were 45, you know, but no. No, you just had to run more of an illness gauntlet because if you did get sick, you were screwed. Yeah, good good health care and good nutrition. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Which was not something that at least the slave class no. in Korea had access to in that era. This sounds unbelievable to me, but according to Wikipedia, even when accounting for infant mortality, the average life expectancy for a peasant was 24 years for men and 26 years for women. Am I supposed to be shocked that it's low or shocked that it's high? That feels really low to feels me. Feels low. Okay, okay. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're working hard and you're eating crap and you're like yeah. running your body into the ground working hard. It just makes me think of mayflies, you know, like mm. people living just long enough to breed. Yeah. Jesus Christ. That's terrible. Creating more peasants. Mm-hmm. Most of the rest of the population were farmers. Korea at this time was primarily agricultural. Part of the reason the caste system was so strict was this Confucian idea of filial piety, which was absolutely sacrosanct. Are you familiar with that concept? Say it again. Filial piety. Filial piety, no. We're going to talk about it more in another episode, but it has to do with the idea that you venerate your elders, and that is what comes first. So you live to serve your parents. Oh, yeah. And your parents live to serve their ancestors. Oh, yeah. That is like alive and well in Korea. That is, <laughs> that is, that is still very, very, very regarded. I mean, it's regarded highly. Elders are yeah. very important in Korean society. Like straight up to like if I'm in line at a convenience store getting a Coke, right? Mm-hmm. If a little old man is getting, you know, like a little ginseng drink, he will just blast right in front of the whole line and pay, and just go right up to the counter and pay for it. And everybody's just like, okay. I've lived 80 years. I've earned absolutely, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just, that's how their society is today. This was fascinating to me. The highest ranked noble in the palace wasn't the king. It was the king's mom, mm. if the king's mom was still alive. Cool. Anyway, there was a quote that I really liked by this guy, Yi jung Uh He was a social critic in the 1700s. He once said, with so many different ranks and grades separating people from one another, people tend not to have a very large circle of friends. Oh, my God. He's just so stratified. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's so funny. Like, all of these things that you're saying just keeps bringing 
my experiences from Korea, I mean, even though it was 15 years ago, back in my head, that is also still alive today. Um, Really? You know, if I taught English there, um, and so Mm -hmm. I dealt a lot with kids because I taught kids. And you could see the differences in social rank by how much money their parents made. And then also age as well. Like I remember having uh, a class, I taught at a a private like after school program. And uh, like if someone was eight years old, they would never be friends with a seven-year-old. Like it was just impossible. Like it was impossible, even if they were in the same grade. Uh huh. Yeah. So it's that difference, like separating by different factors, I guess, probably evolved over the years as well. But yeah, still alive. And that's wild. I mean, I was reading about the sumptuary laws. These are laws that govern like what you're allowed to buy, what you're allowed to wear, what you're allowed to own. In Europe, the really famous one is like only the king's allowed to wear purple. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's like a regal color. Yeah. In Korea, it's like out of a YA fantasy novel. Like I used to always get annoyed when I'd read a book or see a movie where like they're the fire casters and they only wear red robes and they're the ice casters and they only wear blue robes. Just trust me when I say there's a lot of books I, like I, I believe you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is what it was. Like you had a family color or like a society, like a, like a societal. Like a job color. Okay. So commoners had to wear white cotton every day. Oh, how dirty would that get as a commoner? My God, give them black at least. On holidays, you could rock some pastels. Hey. That was like the max. (laughs) Nobles could wear colored silks, brighter when they were younger, more muted when they were older, but the color was determined by like what directorate they were in. Huh. So everyone had a uniform. And you could tell, I I watched a movie about this topic last night just to get some visual And yeah, like when you see the ministers arrayed out in the courtyard of the palace, there's the blue guys, and there are the red guys, and there are the black guys, and there are the, you wow. know, and they're all, yeah, well, it, organized by uniform. Easy to identify, I guess. I like clothes too much for a society like sure, that. Sure, sure. I mean, it is, it's a very uniform-driven society, too, though. So now that we have a little bit of context, let's talk about the hero, well, not, maybe she, the author of our story? Lady Haigung. She's the author of the memoir that we're basing this on. She's the wife of the prince. We're going to start in this first episode by talking a little bit about her. Awesome. And about her fairy tale life. Lady Haigung was born in her grandparents' house on the west side of Seoul, which was already the capital, Mm -hmm. at 1 a.m. on the 18th day of the sixth month of the Umyo year. Okay. Which is like a day in 1735. I couldn't find a good calendar comparison. The night before she was born, her dad had a crazy dream. He dreamt of a shimmering black dragon appearing on the wall of the delivery room. He was convinced by this that he was going to have a boy because the vision of a dragon surely portended that an extraordinary child was about to arrive. Eye roll. Anyway, no, no, he gets a girl, (laughs) baby. A girl, baby. A girl who was surely destined for extraordinary things. And boy, howdy, was she. All because of this dragon dream? Yeah. The parents were like, this girl's going places. Apparently. But, I mean, they're obviously, she's born into a higher status family. She's born into a scholarly family. They're part of this upper class, but they're at the lower. So, like, upper. They're not wealthy. Okay, so lower, like, upper middle class or lower upper class? 
it's different, right? right? Because like it's not all about wealth. Right. It's about scholarly rank. They don't have a ton of money, but they're well regarded. Well, that sounds like the last story you told me. Yeah, a little huh. bit. Like the Godwins, yeah. sure. But not revolutionary. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Baby Haigun was very, very close with her family. She had an older sister who died, so she was the only girl, though she did have some brothers. And as such, her parents doted upon her. And where her brothers were shown a lot of strict discipline, she was shown, in her own words, only love and affection. Hmm. A really beautiful relationship. From the beginning, Lady Haigun describes herself as being very grown up, very mature at a young age. And I know that this is something that was seen as really positive in this era, so it might be a little bit of a humble brag, but it might also be true. It's coming from a memoir, who knows? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, write whatever the fuck you want about yourself. Yeah. So she was saying she was a mature kid and... Very sort of sober, mature mm. adult God. at a very young age. Yeah. You're kind of that's kind of a rare kid to find. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I have a good friend of mine has a son, and he's eleven or twelve, and he is like a little old man. It's so adorable. Huh. He like goes around the house at night before he goes to bed. He walks around the house and he checks every window and he checks every little door and makes sure that Aww, they're locked. And then they? he closes the little blinds, make sure that the you know that the People can't see inside. And then he's like, okay, mom and dad, I'm going to bed. And every time I'm over there hanging out, I'm like, that is the cutest fucking thing I've ever seen. Oh, my God. I know, right? He's like a little man. And that's just, no one taught him that. That was just, it's just his DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so so you are around a lot more kids than I am since you have kids. (laughs) Yes. What percentage of the overall kid population in your experience is like that? Oh, my God. Very small. I I don't think I could put a number on it, but small, small, small. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's put a pin in that. Okay. Okay. A little about her parents. She describes her father as scholarly and filial, as well as kind-hearted and generous, and her mother as filial and industrious. Again, we're going to talk a lot about filial piety okay. next episode. The way she describes it, the household wasn't luxurious in part because her father was incorruptible which I guess means he didn't take bribes. So because he stayed straight to the letter of the law, he didn't get any bonus income that would have made them live a more lavish life. Do you have to, um, do you have to declare bribes on your taxes? I'm sure they had a document. The the little section (laughs) on your taxes is like other income, including alimony and and bribes. And bribery. (laughs) I hope so. The story starts to take a turn in 1743, when her dad gets an audience with the king. Ooh, why? I'm not sure, but he does. It was especially a big deal because even though he wasn't super high up in the scholarly ranks, he wasn't an 18, he might have been a 10 or something. Oh my God, they didn't actually number it, did they? Because we did... Oh, yes. Oh, they did? There were numbers. Okay, because there, yeah. there are ranked numbers at my job. Uh, maybe your job picked that up from Josie and Korea. I'll, I'll ask HR. Which, when I say Josie and Korea, I'm pretty sure I'm just saying Korea, Korea. Sure. You can just, I mean, at this point, we know the story where you're telling, so you can just call Korea. Okay. Yeah. This meeting is the moment that the palace becomes aware of Haigung's family. Okay. They sort of get on the radar of the palace. And the king suggests that he take a civil service exam. Brilliant. That he can bump up in the, in the ranks. 
So at this point, the little lady, I'm going to mostly call her the little oh. lady because. Was that like a real nickname or are you just like that? I just like that. Okay. I like it. The little lady is eight. She's probably not thinking much about this. She knows her brother is supposed to get married the next year. So that's super exciting. She's going to have a new sister-in-law. She knows dad is maybe up for a big job. So that's really exciting. She's not thinking about herself. Wait a second. Her brother is getting married. How old is she at this point? She's eight. So she's not the firstborn. No. Oh, for some reason, I thought you said she was the firstborn. Okay, so she has an older brother. She was the first surviving girl. Okay, so she has older brothers. Okay, cool. What happens next is straight out of a fairy tale. Sounds like it. Before her brother can get married, before her dad can retake the exam, because uh, he fails the first time and then he tries again, the king, Yongjo, announces that it's time to find a bride for his son, Prince Jinghyun. Okay. See where this going. <laughs> the crown prince is also eight years old. Aww. To be clear, this is really young for marriage, even in 18th century Korea. Don't tell me that they get married soon after this. That's my understanding. Wow. I never, I just thought they were. But we're not there no, yet. I You're know. spoiling well, you it. know it's coming. Interesting. I didn't know that they like literally legally got married that young. Yeah. Average marriage age around that time was like 14, 15, right. 16 which is more, it's not single digits. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. Yeah, but 14, 15, I mean, that's in this era, no matter where, that sounds about right. Now we're dealing with a world-class bureaucracy here. So bureaucracy note, we're going to talk about how the the call for a wife works. The call for a wife. The call for a wife. I hate that phrase, but keep going. It is a multi-step process. Okay. And big thank you to the blog, thetalkingcupboard.com, for this info. Again, normally wouldn't use a blog, but limited resources. I feel okay. like I feel like call for a wife is like straight up a TLC rea- reality <laughs> show. It sounds like it. This season on Call oh. for a Wife. I mean, right, like, <laughs> well, there's that show, that uh, 90 Day Fiance, so kind of sounds like that. Yeah. Anyway, back to bureaucracy. Super exciting. So normally when a couple is ready to get married or when it's time for a man to find a wife, let's say, or a boy to find a wife, you would go to a matchmaker. No, 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 no. This is not good enough for the royal family. No. They're not going to entrust that to anybody else. So the matchmakers need to be the royal family themselves, Hmm. which means that the whole process of looking for a wife is going to be a big occasion, which means you need a directorate. Right. You got to have a committee for that. Got to have a committee. So you got the Royal Wedding Directorate. This is a temporary group that would form headed either by the Minister of Rights or the Minister of Taxation that would then disband after the ceremony after getting a bonus. Taxation? Weird, right? That's very weird. The primary job of these guys is creating a, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but Uivwe, Uivwe. It's spelled U-I-G-W-E. Okay. Uivwe. It was something like that. Uivwe. Or a royal protocol. Okay. And these are those documents we were talking about that describe every element of the wedding down to the tiniest, tiniest wow. detail. God, I wish we had those. God, I want to, like, know. You can find samples of at least the diagrams online. Okay. There are lots of oh, pictures okay. Involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was also a construction group that were tasked with creating all of the buildings needed for the wedding and a repair group that would renovate anything that needed restoration or renovation. And you know what? You needed all of that because the marriage process makes an Indian wedding look small. Okay. So first, you've got the selection process. This is step one. 
all families with daughters of the correct age as determined by the Queen Dowager, who were not part of the royal line, meaning they had a different last mm-hmm. name, not an orphan and not illegitimate, were asked to send in sort of a wedding resume that included their daughter's name, age, birthday, father's name, etc. Did you have to have a certain like grade level? Did your family have to have a certain grade level? These are only the noble families. Okay, so yes. Okay, interesting. Right. They generally wanted a girl a couple of years older than the crown prince. So in this case, the the call was probably for ages 9 to 11. Okay, first of all, what is on a bride resume? It's just a CV. It's it's just like... I know, like, but what do you put? Nadia, it's like a business card. It's it's like your name, your birthday, because okay. they want to set up like somebody who is uh, astrologically auspicious oh. with the birthday of the okay. prince. Okay. I know father's name okay. was on there, father's occupation. Enjoys playing. <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. at that age? Like sounds like a online dating, but for kids. Ugh. Ah, ah. I hated saying yeah. I hated saying anyway, that. Anyway. But yeah, okay. Okay. When they issue this call for resumes, they also issue a decree of marriage ban, meaning no women are allowed to be married off. No women at all, not just eligible women like the 9 to 11-year-olds, no women can be married until after the crown prince's consort is chosen. Stop it. Mm-hmm. Full-on marriage ban. Whoa. This selection step is step negative one of a lot. Wow. Okay. They call it the pre-screening, and then <laughs> later on it said the screening is step one. So this is step negative one. Okay. Now, Haegyung's mom didn't want her name and her resume to be sent. Really? She felt like they weren't prestigious enough, felt like it would be a waste to even try. But father, ever incorruptible, said no, no. As a subject, one does not dare to deceive the throne. Well, yeah, and he just impressed the king. I mean, come on. Yeah, you right? got an in. It's all about getting that job. It's all about having the contacts. Yeah. And to the family's surprise, the little lady, the youngest of all of the applicants, passes the pre-screening. Stop it. So there's like semifinals? Oh, we're only on like the <laughs> okay. quad finals at this okay. point. Because now begins the actual three-step screening process. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. The next step was to come to the first screening at the palace. And this is actually tricky. It's sort of an expensive process for the families that do have to send a mm. child because you have to get a palanquin for them. A what? Palanquin. A palanquin is, uh, you know when you see pictures of people being carried on a covered litter by a bunch yeah, of men yeah, with yeah. poles on their shoulder? That's oh, a palanquin. Okay. Yeah, a litter. That's how I know. That. So, like, do yeah. you... I think litter is just uncovered oh, okay. in a palanquin. Okay. It's a box. Um, do you have any concept of, like, how many young girls made it to the step one of the screening process, made it beyond the, you know, resume? I couldn't find an exact yeah. number. It seemed like I read 30 somewhere. Okay. Well, that's, that's. I mean, out of an entire country, that's that's a pretty big yeah. step just to get to the first. It's somewhere between 30 okay. and 100. Okay. Still, that's a big cut. You're, yeah. making a, you're making the cut. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So if you pass through that first cut, you've got to get to the palace. And here we have our Scarlett O'Hara moment because the family is pretty frugal. Stop it. So the little lady's mother sewed the finest garments she could out of scraps and old clothes. Oh, my God. Yes. And put her in a beautiful secondhand hanbok. Oh, my God. And she shows up along with all of these other children, all older than her, on the 28th day of the ninth month. To be inspected by the leaders of her country. Oh my God, wearing her Dolly Parton coat of many colors that her mama yes. sewed for her. 
<laughs> she would have shown up in that outfit, but without any makeup or jewelry, because this is the step where your beauty gets evaluated. But untouched, unadulterated, mm-hmm. yeah. As well as your manners. So you're served food and drink, and people observe how you eat to see if you have good enough but etiquette. But, like, recruiters are, are observing you, not anyone from the royal family or anything. It's like screeners. They're screeners, but there are some members of the royal family that are there early on. Being the youngest in this big group, Haigyung figures there's no way in hell she's going to get picked. So she doesn't worry about it. She decides to use the day as an opportunity to see what the palace is like, take in the sights, and go home. But the king and queen, King Yungjo and Queen Jungsung, take a liking to her right away. After all, they already like her family. They've met her dad. She's also taken to see Lady Sunhui. I'm so sorry if I'm it's, butchering these names. It's hard. Korean is a really hard language. Yeah, for for um for someone who speaks like a romantic or a Germanic language, it's it's definitely very different. Yeah. So she's just got this like laissez-faire attitude. She's like, whatever, I'm enjoying my day. That's probably why they she probably just didn't look nervous. So they were like, ooh, who's she? Well, but imagine your friend's son who's like little mini adult. So she's probably there with her hands right. gently folded and like observing quietly and Oh and yeah, politely. that would stick out. So she's taken to Lady Sunhui, and she likes her too. Lady Sunhui is the crown prince's bio mom. Okay. So she's in the palace. She's a big part of the story, but uh, she is not the queen. Oh, okay. To Haigyung's shock, she's becoming a fast favorite, even in this step one. All the ladies of the court are sensing which way the wind wow. is blowing, and they want to sit next to her, and she gets given some gifts, which means she's passed. If you get gifts, you move on. That's your, like, rose at the end of the Bachelor episode. Shut up. That's so funny. Does this, I mean, is this all in one day? Do you know how long this process of her sort of winning these people over is taking? I want to say it takes a couple months. Oh, so they keep going back to the palace for different events. Yep. Oh, God, how exhausting. I know. So she's given a gift. She's one of the eight that are chosen out of the initial group. Here we go. Yeah, getting the finalist. And uh, everyone's getting a little worried. Everyone else. Everyone else. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she was probably a little excited, but mostly scared because if she gets sent to the palace, spoiler alert, if you get married into the palace, you're not ever allowed to go home again. She'll never see her childhood home again. And she's nine. Well, she can, like, can her family visit? Yeah, but she doesn't have any control over whether she's allowed to see them when they're in the palace. I mean, remember, patriarchal culture. Sure. Oh. Basically, you know, she's still sleeping with her mother in bed every night. Yeah. Aww. So she's, she's like, I don't, I don't she's know. She's eight. She's eight. Yeah. Oh. That's scary. I know. After the first screening came, of course, the second, where those eight girls would be whittled down to three. Wow. In a typical second screening, the remaining eight girls would wear makeup and accessories. Now the test is how smart the girls are and how they fare in a court setting. So they're given the sort of Miss America type questions and also sort of like puzzler Confucian questions. And this is at the top three. They they have to they pass this. This is to whittle down. They pass the the swimsuit competition and they're now in the they're now in the, you know, I want world peace question mm-hmm. it's the interview stage right <laughs> but it's questions like how can you define the heart of a man and the answer is oh, well Jesus. a woman is like the sky and a man is like the earth i'm making it up but no it's stuff like that. N- wow oy, oy, oy. 
The stakes here are also really high for the three girls remaining. Well, yeah, they're about to become future queen. Well, it's more than that, because one of them is going to become the future queen, but the other two are now considered property of the crown prince, and they are never allowed to marry again. What? Mm-hmm. So it's like do or die at this point. Yeah. If they're lucky, they might become a concubine of the crown prince later. That's allowed. What if they're not lucky? Well, these are the daughters of high-ranking families, yeah. so they could, you know, there were exceptions given. You could petition the court. There's still, like, a possibility of not being able to ever get married. That's Being a widow at nine. That's what they were considered. A widow at nine. A widow at nine. Oh, my God. Haigung and her parents are really hoping that she's not going to get chosen at this point because the family's really close. They don't want to split up the family. Even the dad, who was, like, kind of like, let's do this, is, like, whoa. Yeah, I think he feels like it's their duty to move forward with it. This is what you have to do. But he wants to keep his yeah. doted-upon daughter. Yeah, and I'm sure even getting to the finals or even the semifinals was pretty awesome exposure for him as well. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. They know as soon as they get there for the second screening that she's the front runner. Like her tent is prepared differently than the one prepared for the other girls. Her welcome is more effusive. The king himself shows up and puts his hand on her shoulder and says, I have found a beautiful daughter-in-law. I mean. Well, yeah. I mean, that's a telltale sign. <laughs> yeah. It's basically official <laughs> The at other this girls point. in the corner are like, okay, I think this maybe is already decided. Yes, I'm a widow now. <laughs> I'm a widow. <laughs> oh. The other girls are ultimately sent away, and she's taken to a special pavilion on the palace grounds to eat lunch with the prince's mother. Has she even met the, has she met the prince yet? No. I don't think so. No, yeah. I couldn't find any documentation that she had. Wow. Or that one would at this stage. Right. And as she's being taken back to her house, little Haigung peeks out of her palanquin and discovers that she's being carried, not by the people who carried her there, but by palace servants. Oh, hey. That's... She's already kind of being treated like an in-law. Okay. Wow. When she arrives home, her parents have already changed into ceremonial garb. Oh, man. Wait, it's like the wedding later that day? No, it's not going to be for another couple months. Oh. But even just being selected has changed the little lady's station in life. Wow. Well, sure, yeah. She says in the memoir, From that day, my parents changed their form of address to me. Now they spoke to me exclusively in respectful language. Yeah, yeah. Now, to put this in context, Korean, like Japanese, has different levels of respect built into the language itself. Uh Uh-huh. And more people are familiar with the Japanese example, so that's what we're wrong with. Jason, if you were a kid in Japan, I might call you Jason-chan, right? Mm Mm-hmm. If you were my coworker, I would call you Jason-san. If you were my boss or someone I admired greatly or a valued guest, I might call you Jason-sama. Uh-huh. In this one moment... Haigung has gone from Haigung-chan to Haigung-sama. And that would be equivalent to, like, a co-worker? No, like a respected elder. Their daughter went from, like, hey, kiddo, to hey, elder? Mm Mm-hmm. Damn. Right? I mean, I guess if you're, like, destined to be queen, then sure. Yeah, that's what it is. They speak to her in the same way they would speak to their own parents, basically. Wow. Yeah. And everyone's uncomfortable. She describes her dad as perspiring heavily, his clothes often becoming soaked, and he seemed to dread the parting. Gross. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's, not, that's not sad. That's gross. Yeah, okay. The night before the final presentation, where she would be officially chosen, even though she'd been unofficially yeah, yeah. chosen. Yeah. 
writing's on the, the little wall. lady slept in between her parents in her <gasps> mother's arms. Stop it. Stop it. Oh, my God. I hate this so much. Knowing that the comfort of her family would soon be much, much farther away. Oh, my God. I'm, like, literally going to cry. That is so sad. She tries to capture every detail of the house in her memory. Every nook and cranny, every special detail. After all, royal custom dictated that once she left, she would never again be allowed to visit the home of her parents. Oh, I feel gutted right now. That is so sad. I know. Oh, that must have been so scary. I really am, like, tearing up. Like, that's sad. I've, I was tearing up when I was reading the memoir. It is. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, coming like being a memoir coming from her, you know what I mean? Not, yeah. not being a, just a biography. I mean, I'm leaving out 90% of her talking about how miserable she was at this. But yeah, she is right. incredibly upset about it. And she remembers it very, very clearly. Uh, yeah. Part of this severing is because in Confucian marriage culture, at this time in this place, once a woman got married, she was no longer a member of her natal family. Yeah. As I understand it, once she died, she would be a venerated ancestor of her husband's family. Yeah. But she was no longer anything to her natal family. So it's a very real severing of ties. And so the morning of the presentation, when messengers from the palace come to her home early in the morning and dress her in ceremonial garb provided by the court, she's being covered in this lavish beauty that she's never had before, but it's very bittersweet. Bittersweet, yeah, that's the word I was about to use, yeah. Ugh. This is when she's removed from her home, and she's brought to stay at the bridal pavilion, or a, the detached palace, it's yeah. sometimes called, and she will never return home again. The main purpose of having this pavilion, it's, it's kind of a special school. So it's giving her basic life mm. lessons and lessons in the Confucian classics, but it's also to prepare her for her wedding, yeah. which is going to be complicated, and she needs to be able to do it properly. Yeah. So she's studying day and night, getting groomed. In the detached palace, and it's a massive change from home. She's surrounded by beautiful furniture, finery, artwork, including a large decorative screen given by the prince's mother. It's an embroidered screen, and it depicted a large dragon, black with gold thread. When the little lady's dad saw it, he said, That dragon is exactly the color of the one I saw in my dream the night before my daughter's birth. The one in my dream was not really black, but I could not describe it. This is bah, so bah, similar. Bah, bah. I'm so sure. Sorry to interrupt you. I'm so sure. Like, of course it's the exact same dragon. Of course, Dad. But again, like, it's straight out of a fairy tale, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Now, in a fairy tale, all of this would have been happy. This is like the lead up to the grand celebration in the fairy tale, which is the wedding. Yeah. And everything's magical and everyone lives happily ever after. The soon-to-be princess would have been thrilled and excited by the opportunity to join palace life, to move from poverty to riches, and become one of the most powerful, doted-upon women in the country. That's the happy ending, right? Cinderella gets engaged, Sleeping Beauty wakes up. But in this real-life fairy tale, we're dealing with a nine-year-old girl, yeah. not a late teen or a 20-something, and she's being ordered, not asked, to leave her parents' home. They're treating her, even her parents are treating her like a dignitary now, not like a daughter. Yeah, I guess they have to. And she's being asked to join a family that is completely foreign to her. Yeah. yeah. On top of this, palace life royalty has always been and remains a gilded cage. 
because even though she'll live this life of luxury, she's also facing an extremely prescribed life of rigid etiquette and extreme duty. And that's if things go well with the prince, who she hasn't even met yet, as far as I can tell. And if things don't go well, it's a huge risk for her family because she could be scapegoated. Her family could become sacrificial lambs if a different group comes to power. Oh, yeah. It's big risks and not a ton of reward, at least emotionally. Yeah, when you're fucking nine years old, when you're a baby. Now, we're, unlike a fairy tale, going to whip through the actual wedding. Oh, it's okay. That's fine. Weddings are stupid. I mean, there's a lot of detail about the bureaucracy of it. Not a lot of detail about the actual event. So, think of this as our Rocky montage, our training montage. This is her getting through the wet. Is that Okay. I can't pay for the rights to this, so we can't sing it anymore. Oh, my God. That's fucking funny. Well, I don't think I sang it right, so I don't think we have to pay for shit. So, yeah. Sure. So so do it. Do the dun dun in the dun, 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 first. Dun, 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 we have the formal proposal letter. Step one: the king wears ceremonial attire. Everyone bows to him. A messenger brings the proposal letter to the detached palace on a horse. He also brings a wooden goose. The bride writes a reply and sends Wait a it back. Second. Did you say goose? I was too busy singing. You, yes, a there's a wooden goose? goose. A wooden, a wooden goose. goose. Here, I'll loop that. So we'll have that going on on the background the whole time, and you can just okay. listen now. Okay. Okay. So they bring her a wooden goose. Yeah, that's tradition. Sure. Very important. Wooden goose. The bride writes a reply and sends it back with the messenger. Step two, the wedding gifts. The palace sends wedding gifts. The king only wears a minor ceremony robe. Step three, the office of astronomy uses the bride and groom's date and birth times to pick an auspicious date for the wedding. Step four, the investiture ceremony. The king officially says that the crown princess is, in fact, the crown princess. And she is given special royal regalia symbolizing such, including a seal, a book, and a robe. Each item gets its own carriage. A seal, a book, and a robe. This is basically the coronation ceremony. Step five, the actual wedding. Finally, the crown prince does a bunch of extra special bowing before the king. They both wear special clothes. The king tells the crown prince to go fetch his royal consort and be good. Then there is a procession. The crown prince rides a very fancy palanquin to the detached palace. I'm actually, I'm hurting my throat now. Which for ritual purposes now represents the princess's childhood home because the prince is too fancy to be allowed to actually show up at the princess's actual childhood home. Bureaucracy highlight. The document documenting this massive procession, a rare occasion for the commoner to see the king or crown prince, was so detailed it would include every single person in the procession, all hundreds of them, including what their job was and their headwear, except the king and queen, because looking at their faces, even in a painting, was very rude. Even in a painting? Mm-hmm. When they arrive at the detached palace, there is a declaration. The princess in her special clothes is given wine by her parents in their special clothes. They tell her to obey her husband. She goes, okay. She moves to another room, and then the crown prince gives a live goose to her parents to replace the wooden one. Now they are officially husband and wife. 
I'm sorry, a goose officiates their wedding? Yes. The parents give the princess lots of advice, then apologize that the advice is not good enough and they did not teach her well. Wait, 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 wait. Take a I'm still thinking about the goose, like, in a little cler- clerical collar, like, like, officiating the wedding. Um, say, say that last thing again. Oh, the next step is the princess changes into a less important ceremonial robe. Okay. Then the parents give her lots of advice, then apologize that the advice is not good enough and that they did not and teach her well. And that's just standard, right? Because we're, we're crap people and you're now the princess and so like uh-huh. everything we've ever said is shit. Weird. Well, then yes, why do they even do it? I don't know. Then they process back to the royal palace with even more people because the princess is included now. Then we're Wait, so, so they got they officially got married in the auxiliary palace in her little area. Uh huh. Oh, that's weird. Seems like you'd get married in like like the main the main. Well, it's because in that first historical yeah Korea, it's a hangover from okay. that because it used to be traditional to get married in the wife's home. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, and then that was you said that was like became her de facto childhood home. Bingo. Gotcha. <laughs> Step six, <laughs> private special bowing and wine drinking, followed by changing into normal night attire and consummation for grownups or snack for the kids. <laughs> Who wants a cheese stick? Weird. Yeah, thankfully, I mean, they're officially married, but they're not expected to live together or consummate the marriage until they have their coming of age ceremony. later. So he'll live in the palace and she'll live in the auxiliary, the atelier. Oh, honey, he already has his own palace. Oh, right, right. Is it like near the king's palace? Are they all kind of connected? I I got the sense it was all part of the same larger like complex. palace complex. Yeah, yeah. Wow. The wow. the greater palace subdivision. <laughs> <laughs> the the polygon of Korea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, please. Polygons crap. Um, <laughs> wow, that is I. I don't know how much I took out of that except for the goose. That's honestly, like, I was so blindsided by the goose that I can't, I can't even. That's insane. I mean, all you really need to take away from it is goose, lots of special bowing. So And much changing bowing. between major and minor ceremonial robes. So much. Well, you know, I mean, even today, like, people have, like, a big old wedding, you know, the... Yeah. There's the there's the rehearsal dinner and you have like your special the bride has a special, you know, dress she chooses for that. And then they mm-hmm. have the wedding and then you have sure. you change into your little cash thing, you know, for the reception. You know, lots yeah. of brides do that or whatever. So it's, you know, that that. Yeah, that that tracks today. So it's not too impossible. But still, that is insane. That is an insane wedding. And but I love that the actual marriage is just like and then they go off into a room and there's a goose and then now they're officially married. Like after all of that insanity, it's just like and then they go off into like, you know, the other room and boom, they're married. That's are they alone with the goose? No. They're with like the king and Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna send you a quote. Okay. This is the piece of advice, the specific piece of advice that King Yungjo, her new father-in-law, gives the little lady on the night of her wedding. Now that I have formally received your gift as your father-in-law, allow me a word of advice. In serving the crown prince, please be gentle with him and do not be frivolous of voice or expression. If his eyes wander, pretend that you do not notice. It is not at all an unusual thing in the palace, and so it is best to behave normally, not letting him know that you notice. It is improper for a woman to show her undergarments to her husband. What? That's the, that took a left turn. 
So do not carelessly loosen your clothes in his presence. There is another thing. The rouge stains on women's towels are not pretty, even though it is rouge. Lipstick. Yeah. So do not leave rouge marks on the towels. Yep. So the king's advice is your husband's going to cheat. Pretend you don't notice. Also, don't show him your panties and don't leave lipstick on the towels. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a very it's a, a variety of advice. It's a mm-hmm. it really runs the gamut. I mean, what's the what's the prince looking at towels? You know, like he's not going to see the dirty towels. We've reached the end of the official wedding Fucking ceremony, weird. but of course, the following days were full of other smaller ceremonies with special robes sure. and special bowing. So many special bowing. I'd love to see that. Uh, there's lots of special gifts. She has to go to the royal ancestral shrine and pay her respects to the ancestors. There's an official banquet for the officials. It's <sighs> anyway. Exhausting. All at nine. She must be exhausted. I'm exhausted listening to it. I'm 42. And I know. I didn't have to do it at nine. Once the lady gets settled into her new house, so she gets moved from the Dowager Palace to another home in the royal subdivision. Right. That's in the Crown Prince's area. Okay. Her mother says to her, The three majesties are very fond of your ladyship. His majesty the king loves your ladyship as though you were his own daughter. Your ladyship is in his sagacious... How do you say that? Sagacious or sagacious? I don't know. I'll say both and choose the correct one in the edit. (laughs) Your lady... Perfect. Your ladyship is in his sagacious grace. Your ladyship is in his sagacious grace. It's got to be sagacious. <laughs> now you should just keep that. <laughs> it's funny. Sagacious grace. Sagacious grace. Your ladyship's duty requires that you ever more exert yourself in filial devotion to the three majesties. That is the best way to serve your natal family. If your ladyship were to think of your parents, please apply yourself in filial devotion rather than crying. Oh, Jesus. She's getting some... I'm sorry, you're not done? Upon saying this, her mom walks out the door, holding her tears until she steps into the palanquin. Oh. Oh, God. Jeez, that's a lot to take in. Now, at this point, I noticed something. And you've noticed it, too, because you brought it up. The little lady has said a lot about her parents. She's talked about the king and queen and the dowager, the the prince's mother, Mm -hmm. the concubine. She said very, very little, if anything at all, about the young crown prince. Well, how many times has she fucking met him? You know what I mean? She's spent very little time with him. It's true. And if this were a real fairy tale, it would have started with the prince. Yeah, right. Right? It would have started with the two of them falling in in a magical, dreamy love. But that's not how royal marriages happened anywhere at any time in history. Royal marriages happen because of politics, because of the needs of succession, the planning of alliances, any number of practical reasons that have nothing to do with the needs of the heart. And they almost never take into account the actual needs, wants, desires, the personhood of the prince and princess. No. The prince and princess are never the protagonists of their own story in history. They're pawns in a larger game of geopolitical chess. In most cases, the prince and princess know this. They've been raised with that knowledge, and they do what they need to do to just get along with it. They make sure they have enough sex to produce an heir and a spare, and then... An heir and a spare? I'm sorry to interrupt. You're never not going to laugh at that. I'm never not going to laugh. Oh, okay. 
They make sure they have enough sex to produce an heir and a spare. And then, in many cases, their lives just don't intersect very often. Right. The purpose of their marriage has been completed and they are left to fulfill the complex, exhausting duties of their station. Ugh. After all, they aren't really people with needs all and right. wants. They're pawns. They're just pieces on a board. Why? But that's not what happens in this story. This isn't just a real-life fairy tale. It's a fractured fairy tale. Yeah. This is the story of what happens when the weight of monarchy is simply too heavy to bear. It's the story of how sometimes, emotionally, a person can no longer grin and bear it. It's the story of how a prince snaps, written by a princess who, years later, is trying to pick up the pieces. Next episode... We meet the prince. Mm, what was his name again? They called him uh, posthumously Sado, 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 uh, or Sado. Yeah. Jang Hyun. Jang Hyun. Okay, is what he was born as. Ooh, ooh. It's interesting. You talked about how they were prepared for it, and they knew that's how their life was going to be, mm-hmm. and they just, you know, sort of resigned themselves to that. I'm just, you know, this is what happens. I'm the prince. Mm-hmm. I'm going to grow up and do this and blah blah blah. But, Marie Antoinette, 13 years right. old, she's taken on a carriage from somewhere in the Austro-Hungarian Empire to right outside of France, where she's asked to strip, change into only French clothes. She will never see her family again. <sighs> they take her baby dog Aww, and then bring her into France to start a new life with a new name and a new job. But she'd been raised since birth to know that was her fate, right? Yeah, but the crazy thing about this little lady is that, like, she had to accept all of that in just, like, three months. Mm-hmm. She, there was no, She's like... She's more of a Princess Diana, right? Yes, 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 totally. It just, like, whirlwind, like, oh, fuck, here, and I guess this is my new life. Yeah. Fuck. But she had been raised with these ideas of filial piety. Right. She had been raised with a deep sense of what duty might yeah. mean for her life. And so I think she's more prepared than one of us would be if we'd been thrown into that situation. Right. There would have been aspects of what's happening to her, but just on a, if she, when she married someone maybe of her class, if she had not, if this had not been her situation. I think what's really interesting and what we're going to get into next episode is how it might not even work, even if you are prepared for it from birth, which the prince certainly was. Okay. I just want to hug this little girl. 400 years, how many, how many hundreds of years later? 300, 300 and something years later. Yeah. Um, God, I just want to hug her. I just want to hug her. Oh. Well, I want to hug all of you uh, who have started <laughs> nice listening to Antique nice Tea. Thank you. <laughs> I want to give a big hug to all of you who have listened, who've told your friends. Please keep doing that. Yes. If you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at Antique Tea Podcast on Twitter. Yes, on Twitter. We have a different Twitter handle. Um, It'll be in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can email us if you have questions, comments, concerns, corrections at Antique Tea Podcast at gmail.com. You can go to bookshop.org slash shop slash antique tea to see our live bibliography, which is one a book alone Aww, for this one. Sad little book. <laughs> And uh, beyond that, Jason, what wise words would you like to leave us with today? I don't have any. I'm like, like of all the episodes, all of the like ups and downs of the romantics, like I sort of feel gutted, gutted by this little girl's story. Uh, she's, she's, I mean, cause I know that like the story with the prince is crazy. Is she very, just give us a little teaser. Is she very, very integral to 
everything that's happening in the future? Or was that kind of the end of her her main character? I mean, her life is important sure. and she does important things, but she acts as witness as a memoirist. Right, right. So she's less of like happening. We're going to be talking more about the prince from this point forward. I just wanted yeah. to, it's really important to me to give the women in stories their due because they often don't get it. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, it gives you an idea. I mean, if the, the, if the one source that you were able mm-hmm. to find is from her, like, let's yeah. find out who the fuck she was and where she was coming from to tell this story, especially as yeah. the wife of this dude. I mean, she wrote this at 60, her first memoir at 60 in 1795. Wow. So that she could pass down sort of what really happened. Wow. Okay. Okay. Man, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I am very excited. I'm just very excited. This This is a good story so far. I'm really intrigued to see what happens and what the fuck she married into. Well, on that note, come back next week for episode two of The Rice Chest on Antique Tea. Bye. Oh, wait. Anyang, wait, how do you say goodbye in Korean? Anyang haseyo. Anyang haseyo. You think I would know. Anyang haseyo.